Thank you so much for tuning in to the logs. Coming up, episode 10, Turn Up the Music. You know, in this uh, modern day and age, we're exposed to a lot of music. It comes from all around the world, from a wide array of people, and it's truly flourished the music industry into something worldwide. And here in the U.S., we are very well aware of this international presence in our music. A lot of people that are singing the songs that we listen to in the car are from other countries. They're from these other English-speaking countries, say from England or Ireland, or Australia, or New Zealand, or Scotland. There are a wide range of people singing an even greater variety of songs. And they're singing them in English, and they're being broadcast to us. And we listen to them because they're good songs. Now, the question here is, if it's really a question or more so an observation, when we listen to these songs, now mind you, these are songs being sung in English, when we listen to them, Most of the singers that sing these songs that are from countries other than the U.S., they sound like they're singing with an American accent, right? You just think of the most popular singers, say, from England. You think Adele, Sam Smith, maybe Ed Sheeran. When they present themselves in their songs, like their voice, it sounds like they're speaking in an American accent, the standard American accent, say, Midwestern American accent. And now why is that? It's because the natural American accent is phonetically neutral. And this has to do with the intonations of the singers singing along with the rhythm of the song. So when they're going about doing this, the singers are actually forced to stress vowels and elongate them. Kind of like how the standard American accent just elongates the vowels. If you use an example being the Chicago accent, you could hear what I just said. Chicago. Chicago. Like the vowels are very stretched out. And when a singer is going to go about singing one of their lyrics, they sing in the way that comes easiest, which is most generally the American accent. And even Americans do this too. People with a New York accent or a Southern accent kind of lose that accent when they go about singing. Country singers strive to not have this happen, so they fight against it. But even with some of their songs, you can hear the standard Midwestern accent come out. What this does when you end up singing in an American accent is create a softer sound that's neutral. What do we mean by that? It means that the words aren't stressed, like the vowels aren't hit very hard by the tongue. So let's take a word. How about water? In the British accent, you would say water. You know, of course, that's not the best British accent, but you get the idea. In an American accent, you would say water. So you're kind of turning that T sound into a D sound. And in doing so, you're removing that hard T -t -t into a softer D, D, D. And it's much easier to sing that way. How would you sing water, 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 water? But you could sing water, 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 what, 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 water, water, what, 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 water, 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 water. It's much easier to do. Try it out for yourself right now. Pick a word and you can do it. It's much more easy to sing in the American accent. So that's why naturally people do it. And they may not even know that they're doing it, but it does occur. 
And it's a cool notion to think that if you possess an American accent, if you're living in the U.S. now and you have the standard Midwestern accent, to know that people sing in the way that you talk. Could you say then that Americans are always singing to each other? Oh, isn't that such a beautiful notion? If you think about it that way, every interaction is a Shakespearean play. Please, sir, can you not sympathize? I require a burger with a side order of chili fries. And then, you know, it's the guy behind the counter. He's kind of big and tough. It's like, oh, I hear your order. Quite clearly, I do. Shan't be long until I fill it. The total is 1032. So now when you think about it, next time somebody's yelling at you, if they have an American accent, just think that they're singing a bad breakup song. It kind of feels a little bit better that way, that they're serenading you instead of berating you. All right, enough distractions, though. What are we doing on this episode? Why are we here right now? Well, on this episode, I want to explore music theory so we can more deeply understand what makes a song a hit. We're going to find that that's attributed to the society that that song is placed in. A song you have now cannot go back even a decade before and be a hit. And hopefully that when we understand these aspects of a song, we can understand why music brings us closer together, why we're willing to go to a concert and sit next to a bunch of people and listen to music or club or bar or listen to music in your car. Oh yeah, get ready. There's going to be a lot of rhyming in this episode and there's going to be a lot of fun too. So let's get ready. And to begin... I think we start off how we start off most of our topics. Let's look at the history. Let's go back before we go forward. That's the way we do it here on the logs. Let's look at the history of music and let's look and see how we can tie every aspect of our topic to the history of music and determine the path that music has taken to today. Because now music is something different. Of course, there's still the music aspect to it, but the music industry has grown into something that involves fame and power and social capital because musicians are no longer people that just write music and send it out to the world. They are the superstar. The thing that's funny to me and that's always been funny about human behavior is why we do things. Because you think in terms of music, why would we go to a concert to see a song be performed in live action versus much more easily putting it in the car or on YouTube? But of course, there's always the counter argument to that because you can say, why do people go and watch sports at a stadium versus watching it at home on the TV where the angles and the cameras and the commentators make it more alive versus actually watching it in the stadium? That's a funny thing about actually being in a sports arena. It's kind of just happening. There's no fervor behind it, except for maybe being a fan in a group. But sometimes the spectacle isn't there. And it could be the same for a concert, because this may be a personal thing, but the concerts that I've gone to just seem a little underwhelming. It kind of puts you off to what you have in your head or visiting something that you've just heard and seen on, say, YouTube, where it's kind of a separation between you and the artist that's there. And when that digital separation is gone between you and the artist, some of the magic is lost there. A good example to kind of see this in a different light is movies. You can look at the movie industry, and you can look at Hollywood. And when you look and you take a deep dive into what Hollywood really is, it's a business. And there are people running the business. And sometimes there are business transactions that are undergone that are less than, say, savory in the taste of the general public. I'm dancing around an issue. I hope you know what the issue is, but 
we'll go with less than savory. So when you look at these practices that are undergone behind the scenes of Hollywood, some of that magic is kind of lost. Because when you go to the movies to see the movie that you've been waiting for for a while, you just see it on the silver screen. It's your movie and you're experiencing in that light. But when the movie kind of steps aside and you look at the people behind that movie, say the actors, the producers, the directors, maybe the studio, the studio that funds the movie, it kind of removes the spectacle, just plain seeing something versus seeing something after you know how it's made. It's a different thing altogether. Here's another example, just a little side note. Now, it's not going to be a drawn out example, but you can think of hot dogs as an example of this, the spectacle of eating a hot dog versus knowing what a hot dog really is and then trying to eat it. That could serve as an example for what we're trying to talk about here, about the musician behind the music and the reasons why we go and see these music pieces performed and just plain why we like them so much. You know, of course, there's eventually going to be an end where we're going to say it's something biological, it's something neural, but let's explore the history behind it because history is a science that is very interesting. And if you've heard any of my episodes, there's a good chance that you heard some history. So, you know, you can't leave an episode out. So we're going to focus on music history. Let's see where music began. We can go as far back as the prehistoric age. This is an age where it's before literacy, before written language, and it takes place mostly before the year 1500 BC, because after 1500, you're getting into the ancient age. Right now, let's look at the prehistoric age. And at this point in time, the most popular instrument was, drumroll, the human voice. Because we all have that instrument. We can all sing, we can hum, we could whistle, we can do a bunch of stuff with the voice. And it is our first naturally acquired instrument. So it wouldn't be uncommon for these prehistoric peoples to be singing around a campfire. Whatever songs or melodies that they found pleasing to their ears. But let's look at some more instruments they used, because instruments have been uncovered by archaeologists. In prehistoric Germany, about 35,000 years ago, humans used this bone flute made from a vulture wing bone. It had five holes on its side, and it had a V-shaped mouthpiece where the person could breathe into. And then, just like a modern flute, they would press down on the holes to change the tune and the note. Of course, back then they didn't have the more intricate noting system that music has today, but you could make music from the very porous vulture wing bone. And think, that's 35,000 years. Another instrument uncovered in Ireland now, from around the same time as the bone flute, was actually a wooden pipe, or let's say a series of wooden pipes, because there were six flutes all tied together, and each of the flutes was between 30 and 50 centimeters long. None of them had any finger holes, so it wasn't like the bone flute where you can press down and create new notes, but you would just kind of slide it across your mouth, kind of like how you do a modern harmonica. And the varied length of the wood would create different notes based on which of the six tubes that you would blow into. And you can see that these prehistoric instruments were based a lot on the, the mouth and air passing through pipes. Do you imagine a prehistoric band? You got one guy on the bone flute, the other on the wooden pipes, main guy on vocals. What would the name of that band be? Would it be like NSYNC, but the N stands for Neanderthal? The Neanderthal Sync. It's like a few guys playing for the crowd. One night only in the cave by the river. Oh, yeah. Okay, so now we're going to move into the ancient period. And this is where it starts to get fun. 
And, you know, it's not only fun for me because the Greeks started a lot of this stuff. It's fun to see how so far back you have more modern looking instruments, written songs, and some historical musical development. So we could look back now, go back 3,400 years to Syria, and we'll find the oldest known song in the world. It was written in cuneiform, which was the form of writing in the area around ancient Syria. And now it's part of the Hurrian songs, which are found all around that area in Syria. They mainly converge on this port city of Ugari. That's where a lot of these early songs come from. But the oldest surviving complete one with musical notes, notations, and just the whole song came from Greece. The melody is recorded in this text with the lyrics and the musical notations, and it was found engraved on a tombstone. It's called the Sikilos Epitaph, and it comes from about the 1st or 2nd century AD. And when the Sikilos Epitaph was deconstructed, identified, and read, they found its dedication. And as I sit here, I have the lyrics and the dedication in front of me, and this will really warm your heart. Um, it is warming mine. And the dedication was translated by modern scholars. And it says, Sikilos tu efterpi. In this reconstruction, Sikilos is the music writer. And he dedicates the song to Efterpi, who is most likely his wife. Efterpi is also the name of a muse that usually plays in music. So it could be that muse, but I think it's nicer if we say that it was his wife. And I have the song in front of me. I will read it to you. And then I will translate it. And then we'll see... Well, maybe you need to get some tissues because it is a little bit sad. And another really crazy thing here is that I have the ancient Greek in front of me. And it still kind of makes sense to what modern Greek is. So that's a whole other story in and of itself. But here's the song. The song from the Sikilos epitaph, from Sikilos to his wife, Efterpi. He says, it's a very short song. Oson zis fenu, miden olos sulipu, pros oligon Esti tozin, totelos ochronos apeti. And that's a song, it's a short little poem, you could say. But what does it mean? Let me translate it to you. The first line, oson zis fenu, means while you live, shrine. Second line, misen olos silipu, means have no grief at all. The third line, pros oligon esti tozin, means life exists only for a short time or a short while. And the last line of the song, totelos ochronos apeti, means time will end, or time is demanding of its due. There will be an end to a human life, if we can think about it that way. So the whole song, while you live, shrine, have no grief at all. Life exists only for a short time. And this time demands its due. So if you think about it from his perspective, he's trying to deal with the end of time for himself. The time that he can't spend with his wife. He calls her shrine, my shrine. He tells her to not have any grief at all for time's end. And he says that even after all their love, time will demand its due. And they will be separated. But only through that, only through the end of his time, his death, will they be separated. But it seems that it wasn't him that passed first. Because if we read the tombstone where this epitaph was found, it reads this in the ancient Greek. Ikon ilithos imi, tithisi 
με σέκυλος ένθα μνήμης αθανάτων σήμα πολυχρόνων. And a lot of the time when you study ancient Greek art and you see how these artists are inscribing and writing on their art, they write it as if the art is speaking to the viewer. So let's say it's a pot, a pot where you could just put oil, let's say water from the well. And if there's some indication, if there's a famous artist that creates the artwork on the pot, he will write on the pot, I am a pot of the artist so-and-so. It's kind of like the pot is its own thing and it's speaking to whoever is there. And it's the same thing here in this inscription on the tombstone of the Seculos Epitaph. That translation, if you translate the ancient Greek to modern day English, reads, I here am a tombstone. I here am an image. And the person that placed me here was a man by the name of Sekilos. And I was placed here as an eternal sign of a deathless remembrance. So it's a song filled with passion. It's a song filled with sadness. It's a song that I can play to you right now. And we can do that because all the musical notes, the notations and everything are included in the epitaph. And the singer here that, and the singer of the song here, is going to be using the Koine or Alexandrian dialect of the Hellenistic era, the classical period where this song in the first or second centuries AD was written. So here it is. Let's listen to the Seculos epitaph, the little poem inscribed within. No sons Isn't that nice? Kind of makes you feel good inside. It sounds a little Scottish, doesn't it? Like the Gaelic languages spoken in the the highlands of the United Kingdom and uh, Ireland. And it just goes to show how good music composition can make a song last throughout time. This song is getting close to 2,000 years old. And you can still listen to it and play it as if it was played in a dining hall of a king's castle back then, 1800, 1900 years ago. And in ancient Greece, the lyre was a very important instrument with the strings. There were double reed instruments, wind instruments. And of course, there were choruses of people singing along to these instruments. And it was very popular in the Greek theater. You would go and watch a play and there would be music in the background to fill the whole scene. And music was very important to the ancient Greeks. Even little boys, they start age at six, seven. They would learn to read, write, and compose music and listen to music. It was a piece that filled what we now see as a common core. It filled one of the niches of a person and what a person should be. And music was one of the tenets of that, along with philosophy and mathematics and science. And during this ancient period, there was also a lot of description of what music should be. For the Greeks, specifically Aristotle, in his writings, he would write what music was in ancient Greece. The Indian classical music era was transcribed in Hindu tradition, in the scriptures of the Hindu tradition, in the Vedas or the Vedas. 
and the Samavida was one of these four Vidas that described music, Indian music, and what it was. In the era of the Persian Empire, in Iran specifically, the Sassanid period, which lasted from about 226 AD, there were more descriptions of what music was. And people were starting to put down into writing what music is, and we can still see their music today. We have the names of some very popular musicians back in the Persian Empire, such as Barbod, Naxia, Ramtin, and even some of the titles of their works have survived. So there is evidence of music playing a huge role in the life of a Persian citizen, just as it did in a Greek citizen and in an Indian citizen all around the world. Like Just imagine, there were conversations between Persian citizens that said, hey, dude, did you listen to that new single by Barbod? It's pretty sick, right? And today we can take a look at that song and see why it was so good. Concurrently in this ancient era, we can also describe the biblical period in which the writings of the Bible inspired a lot of Judeo-Christian culture and music. Hebrew children in these ancient times were taught of the writings of the Old Testament. So they were taught of Moses and the Red Sea and the Exodus, and they would sing songs based on those stories. And from these writings, important Hebrew poetry was written. And it became, as it did in ancient Greece, an important part of training for a young Jewish student. Solomon's Temple was also a great school of music where students would learn to read, write, and sing music. And at this temple, there were large bands with singers and with instruments that would play for audiences. And it was imbued with culture because the Hebrew songs were based on the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And they focused on traditional and very impactful moments in Jewish history. And as it did in the Seculos Epitaph earlier, we can see that music plays a role more than just entertainment. It could have a very strong meaning, an impactful, gut-wrenching, or soul-lifting theme behind it. And it plays a role even till today. And now we've reached the end of the ancient period, and we're at the fall of the Roman Empire. It seems like we always fall into the Roman Empire at some point. I have to mention it. But the empire fell in 476 AD, and this is called the early music period. Just slightly confusing, because we've mentioned for the entire episode now that there were earlier pieces of music. But this is the early music period, and it lasted from the fall of the Roman Empire in 476 to about the 18th century, 1700s. And this was a very long stretch of time, and it was focused mainly on what we spoke about with the Hebrew songs. The only thing really connecting people at this point in time was the Roman Catholic Church, especially in Europe. And as the world was becoming more interconnected and more diverse, music was doing the same thing. During this medieval era, there were a lot of different kinds of music being produced. And a lot of them are unknown. They've been kind of lost to history. But with the focal point being the Roman Catholic Church, we can predict that a lot of them were focused on the ideas of the church and the stories based within the Bible. And other music, too, was also sprouting about in the medieval era. But you could just kind of assume that in this time, a very dark time, the music would also reflect that. And most of it, like we've said, is lost to history. We can leave it at that. Let's get to the Renaissance, where music becomes more posh. And, you know, as I say it in that way, you can just imagine the powder wigs, the hand is outstretched, kind of facing, the palms facing you, and the fingers are kind of stretched out. And the, the wrist is almost at chin level. And, of course, you're a lord, so you have a bunch of rings on the 
and you look very important and you just like look at your subjects and say i don't care for your tone and the renaissance era just as there was explosion in knowledge everywhere else there was the same thing in music music follows along with the society it's in and this was up until 1600 and the renaissance era saw an increase a resurgence in human knowledge and it led to what would be known as the Enlightenment period, which lasted from about 1680 to 1820, 1815. From here, humans experienced an explosion of knowledge, especially around Europe. And it's known as the Age of Reason. Logical theories, science dominated this time. But music also felt the same way. There was an explosion in how music was taught and transcribed and listened to. Now, for music, we're going to describe these eras a little bit differently. We're not going to describe really the Renaissance to the Enlightenment period. What we're going to use are three new eras, the Baroque, the Classical, and the Romantic eras. So let's start from there. 1600 to 1750 can be defined as the Baroque era. It starts at the peak of the Renaissance era and goes into the Enlightenment period, if we focus it on the more logical reason science aspect. But we're looking at it through music, so we're going to use the Baroque era. Some of the most famous artists in the baroque era were johann sebastian bach and george friedrich handel antonio vivaldi and in this time music expanded just as all other knowledge did music gave birth to fields like opera and large-scale orchestras music in this era took a turn from what medieval music was in a composition there were multiple simultaneous streams of melody in the medieval period it was much more simple it was one direct line of melody from the instrument or from the vocals so music became more complex more complex to write and to play many instruments were connected together string instruments like violins and violas brass instruments like trumpets woodwinds were all put into an orchestra and then they would add a choir of people singing along with the music and keyboards pipe organs were very important too harpsichords music became a whole production in how it was written and then played to the public so here let's take a look at what multiple streams of melody and the more complex nature of music is here's a piece by johann sebastian bach let's listen to it and then we'll talk about it So here you can see the multiple melody streams and how complex this music is. It's going up and down the scales. And as it does so, it kind of makes you feel different things. It peps you up, it gets you really excited, and then it dies down a little bit. And it kind of almost seems a little bit more sad. And if you want to listen to the full song, you can look up Johann Sebastian Bach's C Major Prelude. That's the name of that one. While we're still in the Baroque era, let's look to another song. 
another song by Bach. This is a song that's probably going to be familiar to a lot of you, but placing it in its time helps you see what the differences are between what Bach is going to do now versus what later musicians are going to do later in the classical and romantic eras of music. This is the Toccata in D minor by Bach. And here you can see the strength of the large-scale orchestra in play. So let's listen to it. So do you hear that? The very strong nature of the large-scale orchestra. At some points, it sounds like the song is just yelling at you. And then at others, it just kind of, it sounds actually very modern, where it kind of picks up the beat, does da 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 And this is what you can do when you have a large-scale band, because there are individual streams of music, individual melodies, all at play. And again, this song was the Toccata in... D minor by Johann Sebastian Bach, if you want to listen to the rest of it. Now, let's look to another artist. Let's look to George Friedrich Handel. So we could learn a little bit more about the opera and the singing, the choir that stands along with the orchestra. And we can look at some of the inspiration that artists like Handel draw from to inspire their music. In this case, we're going to listen to George Friedrich Handel's Messiah. And I think it's fairly clear where he draws his inspiration for this one. So let's take a listen to this. It's probably going to be another very familiar one to you. You just need to put a name behind the song. So here it is.
And that's the power of having an opera attached to your orchestra. It brings a whole new life to the song. And again, we can see the complexity in place with these songs because each person within the orchestra, within the opera, within the choir has their own thing to do. And only when they're working together do they build a melody like this. This is one of the great jumping off points that the Baroque era gave to music, especially coming out of the medieval era. And it's going to be very influential as we move into the classical era. And musicians and composers in the classical era took a look at what opera singers did to music and how they elevated the piece. And what they did was create melodies that were almost singable, like you can just sing along with the instruments in your head. What it gave birth to was a new form of classical music that replaced the actual singers in the band with just instruments. And the music became the entire focus of the song. Of course, singers in opera and in other locations did not disappear. A lot of Italian opera singers were still popular in this classical period. But melody-like music and very flowy, very calm music became the focus of this period, specifically when we look at Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, who was the figurehead of the classical era in music history. So let's see how he actually adapted music to the classical period, because a lot of people were influenced by what Mozart did for music. One of his most famous works was the Ein Klein Nachtmusik. That's the best German I can muster. But what it means in German was, or is, a little serenade, or more directly, a little night music. So here it is. This is Ein Klein Nachtmusik. And as you listen to this, I want you to keep in mind two things. One being the shift away from Baroque music, and two, how the melody is able to be sung. Keep those two things in mind because they're going to be very integral in the difference and the shift between Baroque music and classical music. So here it is. you hear the slight shift there? It's very, it's very, very slight. And if you pay attention to how the music is structured, 
you can almost replace a voice with it, especially when it goes and hits those high notes. It sounds like an opera, just sung by instruments. And that in and of itself describes the shift in the classical period towards large-scale orchestra replacing much of what the choir did for music in the Baroque era. And now we can't forget our concept here. We've said that music depends on the society that it's in. During this time in the classical period, when Mozart was writing music, the late 1700s, it was at the onset of industry. A lot of the things that were coming into play in science and technology were there to replace the human element. And art is part of that discovery. And we'll see that again much later down the line, where the human element of what art is will be replaced by technology in the instruments at play in an orchestra. In the Baroque period earlier, we were just coming off of what humans could be. We were at the elevation of human existence in the Renaissance era. And humans, in the form of an opera or a choir, were partnered with instruments to deliver a new experience. Now, with Mozart in the classical time, we're removing that human element to see something else, to see what the technology can bring us in and of itself. And now, as we move into the Romantic era, we see what this technology does to us. And a lot of art and emotion is reignited in music. It becomes filled with feeling again. And not to, that's not to say that the other art wasn't filled with emotion and the passion of the people that created it. It was technologically and musically very sound. But again, we see a shift in what humans are going to enjoy in art in the Romantic era. But before we can get there to the Romantic era in the late 19th century, we're going to have this transition period between what classical music is in the classical era and what it will become in the Romantic period. And the perfect person to focus this transitional period on is Ludwig von Beethoven, because he will expand what music is and he will add a lot of emotion into what his music will be. So here, take a listen to what Beethoven has created. We're going to listen to two and we're going to see how you can instantly find an emotion associated with the song that he's created. So here's the first of the two. This is Fur Elise. So you can feel the emotion there in that one. It feels very hopeful. It feels like you're building up to something. It's like, da na 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 And you kind of raise your chest as the song is played. And then it kind of relaxes. Going with the breath that you take, you open yourself up, you breathe, and then you let go. It's something different. And again, very slightly different 
from what the classical period offered, but it will transition to what we see in the Romantic period. Here's another one. This is Symphony Number no. 5 by Beethoven. Listen and then tell me what you feel after the emotion behind this one. See, now this one has a different feel. I wouldn't say it's angry. It's more passionate, maybe. And maybe that's not a very good word either. It sounds like the intro to a battle scene. And it kind of hits you hard in the beginning. And then it kind of winds down. And you kind of see the emotion of the soldiers' faces as they're coming to terms with what they're doing, right? And then it kind of pimps up again and the action starts again. It's very heavy in emotion. And the fact that you can create a scene like that say a battle scene that you could put this song to, just shows the difference between the classical era music and now in the transition period to the Romantic. So we are firmly planted in Romantic era territory at this point. At the early onset of the Romantic era, in the middle of the 19th century, we have composers like Friedrich Francois Chopin, whose life was filled with much hardship. He was a child prodigy, who was a genius at the piano, but he had a difficult time in early Warsaw in Poland. He also had a tough time supporting himself with music. He would sell his music, and he would give lessons on the piano, but he was always in poor health, and he ended up dying at the age of 39. But he produced some great music, and it was filled with the emotions that he had felt throughout his life. So here is Chopin's Funeral March.
you can definitely feel the sadness in this song. It just puts you down. You can understand that the artist was in a state of despair when they were writing this because it puts you in a state of despair when you're listening to it. And it's so soft, it almost matches your heart beating. And our first truly romantic artist is an example of this emotion imbued in music. As we move into the later 19th century, the orchestra grew and music became even more complex. And something as simple as going to a concert became an even more important thing in urban society. It became something to do and something that people wanted to do to experience the new music that was developed in their time. So here's an example of the music within this late 19th century and within the Romantic era. This is by Johann Strauss II. It's called Blue Danube. And it's another song that I'm asking you to take a close listen to and find the emotion behind. Because this is the Romantic era, and this is the reflection of society. So here is Blue Danube by Strauss. Isn't that another interesting song there? It almost takes on a new personality every time it hits its peak. It 
goes and goes and goes and then it reaches and it goes very high and very loud and then it stops for a second and then it moves into its next emotion and it's a very happy song it shows that there is other emotions other than sadness in this point in time and artists were taking advantage of everything they could find to inspire them and as we move further into the romantic era and start to get into the 20th century near the cusp of global expansion of nearly every industry we see just another little blip composers were trying to create new music that was filled with the themes of their own time because especially now we're getting into the 20th century industry is ramping up faster than people could even fathom here's a song by edvard grieg this is a norwegian composer and pianist and he represents some of the songs that were being composed near the end of the romantic era so this is Grieg's In the Hall of the Mountain King. Listen and tell me what you think. It's going to be a departure from what we just heard. Wow, that was a departure from what we know. Do you see the speed at which he attacks the song, especially as it pumps up? I really recommend you listening to the entire thing. Again, it's In the Hall of the Mountain King by Grieg. And it represents the closing of the Romantic era, especially as we move into the 20th century, where new themes start to emerge in music. Namely, in the 1920s, jazz music, inspired by african-american communities in new orleans jazz took on a whole new shape in music it's characterized by notes music notes that stray away from the traditional and it's heavy on improvisation from the artist that's playing the song whether they're singing it or they're playing an instrument like a saxophone or a trumpet jazz did away with the normal meters that were used in music writing the beats and the formal structures that were in place for so long now. A new rhythm, like the blues or gospel sounds, were introduced in jazz. The forerunner of the jazz movement was Louis Daniel Armstrong, or Louis Daniel Armstrong, whether you're saying it in the French way or the American way. Louis Armstrong was born in New Orleans in the U.S., so we're going to go with Louis. And he was a staple figure in the movement of jazz from the 1920s active until the 60s or the 70s close to the 70s 
he played the trumpet. He was a composer. He sang vocals. And he moved music into a new light. Instead of music sounding like it did in the Renaissance classical age, now it could sound like this. a little bit. There's a new feel to the music here. It's more active. It's more free-flowing. It seems like it's ready for the party and it's in the party. It's not on a stage. It's in the center and people are dancing around to it, not just gazing at the marvel of how it was composed. It also seems like it's improvised and jazz will continue and it will spread across music. It will become the it form of music as we head into the 1930s and the 1940s. And also, as we head into these eras, and we get closer and closer to our time, we are heading into the time of licensure. So that last song that I just played wasn't from Louis Armstrong. It was just an example. So for the sake of not getting in trouble by using licensed music, we will use music examples from now on. Okay. So now we head into the 1940s, and music is still very similar to what it was in the 20s. It's shifting, though. It's shifting a little bit, because jazz is constantly changing because of its improvisation ability. And we're going to see this becomes a generality in music, because as John Milton Cage Jr., an American composer and music theorist, said, what arose in the middle of the 20th century was a, quote, experimental action end quote. He called it, quote, experimental music, of which, quote, the outcome is not foreseen, end quote. What Cage is referencing here is the great expansion of music because of one key thing that occurs in the middle, late 20th century, once we reach the contemporary music era in the 70s. But before we get there, let's fill that little gap between the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s to see what is going on there. In the 40s, we still see an expansion of jazz music, something that sounds like this. That was a slow dance number, but you can see in there, or or hear rather, the saxophone, the piano, and all those improvisation techniques that are going into play in jazz. 
as we move into the 50s, we see a new form of music take the scene again. Artists that are inspired by jazz will change it up. They would be, in around the mid-1950s, influenced by the jazz and blues, and then later change it to rock and roll. Two of these most famous artists are Elvis Presley and Chuck Berry, and their popularity grew with the help of things like the radio. Households in America and all across the world can turn on their radio station and listen to something like this. that song you can hear the influence of jazz it's very improvised it's loud it's very danceable like you can dance to it it's in the party maybe it even started the party and songs like this will continue and the artists behind them will become more and more famous because the radio is becoming more and more powerful technology is starting to be integrated with music bringing music to households and the names of the people writing and singing the music are coming along with it. And as we move into the 60s, we see yet another change in music. In the U.S., we experience what is called the British Invasion, where bands like the Beatles or the Rolling Stones brought their music to American shores. And here, you can really start to see how superstardom in music begins. And as we move into the 70s, and especially the 80s, Huge changes are going to occur that will create the beeline to what we see today. Music started to be created for the masses. Pop music was the new thing. Pop rock was really popular in the 60s. And that continued into the 70s. Bands like Led Zeppelin or Queen, ACDC, Kiss would all introduce the hard rock era in modern music. And disco music, too, was very popular in the mid to late 70s. Bands like the Bee Gees were super popular at the local disco where people would go and dance. And it's very weird to think that bands like Kiss and the Bee Gees were in the same decade. But that's the scope of music that we're in now. And pop music still flourished at this point in time. With bands like the Jackson 5 or Elton John, Paul McCartney, the beginnings of David Bowie's career were all founded in the 70s, and they would all explode in the 80s. The 80s are what some consider to be the best decade of music in human history. You can go, after you listen to the podcast, on any search engine and type 80s playlist, and you'll be greeted with a playlist of songs that you can still get up and dance to. That was the influence of the 80s. And it sounded like this.
And I choose that song not because it's a perfect example of whatever happened in the 80s, but because it's not. Because the 80s was everything. Every aspect of music, from pop to rock, was expressed. And it was expressed loudly and proudly by the people that wrote the songs and pushed it to the public and the people that listened to the songs and went to the concerts. All the while, throughout these decades, computers and the IT industry technology was growing. What we will see, and actually what we just heard, was electronics or computers playing a role, a big role in music, in both how it's recorded and how it's played. The disco fever of the 70s would be replaced by a new kind of music, and a new wave of what music will be. Dance pop became the most popular, because clubs were playing that sort of music, People wanted to hear that music because the world was shifting again. It was becoming more interconnected with technology. Television sprouted MTV, music TV. And now people not only heard their favorite artists, but they saw them on screen. MTV would just play loops and loops of music videos, much like what we see now on YouTube, just on TV. And here it is. This is the stepping off point of what superstardom will become in music. Because when you can hear and see your favorite artist on TV, they become something more. Like we mentioned in the beginning of this podcast, there's more of a mysticism to that person. Because you're not just listening to the radio and just imagining who the artist is. You're watching them on MTV, and it's a crazy, awesome music video. It's something mystical. And it's a story being told in the form of music. The artists that were able to do music videos the best were the most popular. I'm just going to rifle off some artists here. And this is what the 80s was. These names, superstardom in the form of music. With pop music, you had Michael Jackson. You had Madonna. You had Phil Collins, The Police, Queen, The Rolling Stones, The Eurythmics, Prince, Billy Joel. With rock music... You had bands like ACDC, you had Def Leppard, you had Aerosmith, Bon Jovi. In the form of New Age R&B music, you had Whitney Houston, Lionel Richie, Stevie Wonder, Cool and the Gang, Earth, Wind and Fire. In the 80s, a wholly new form of music, hip-hop, became very popular with bands like Run DMC, Public Enemy, Salt and Peppa, MC Hammer. And even just including these lists with these few people is doing a disservice to what the 80s was. It was a transformation of music that we still feel today. It was in every aspect of music. And it was fueled by what technology was and how the world was changing along with the music that the people were listening to. And as the world grew and commercialized, music was changed. And in the 90s, pop music and rock music were the two most influential branches of what music was. In terms of pop music in the 90s, teen pop fueled what was pop. Bands like the Backstreet Boys, NSYNC, singers like Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera and Jessica Simpson changed what pop was and changed the focus of music. Rock music turned into alternative rock forms with bands like the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Nirvana, Green Day, all these bands were influenced by what was going on in the 80s, but they applied what their music genre was to the 90s, to a more commercialized world. 
And of course, throughout this whole period of time, things like the music video became ever more important in marketing the band behind the music. And as we move into the 2000s, the undertone of hip-hop rose and dominated what music was. Artists like Kanye West, Snoop Dogg, Jay-Z, Eminem, Lil Wayne, Ludacris changed music to what we really see now. And hip-hop grew beyond the United States and started to spread throughout the world. And of course, we're still following along with our theme of music reflects the society that it's in. When our society becomes ever more connected, music does too. So we see a worldwide change in what music was. And hip-hop dominated that change in the 2000s. And now, as we live in the 2010s, we see another change in music. By 2009, genres of music that were kind of left out in the early 2000s were starting to rise. Things like R&B, artists including Taylor Swift and Rihanna and Katy Perry would change that and would sell a lot of albums. With the power of the internet, more indie music could make its way to more people. Bands like the Lumineers and artists like Vance Joy could market what they had to say to more people. And of course, with its huge boost in the 2000s, hip-hop would still grow. And it is still growing now. Many new rap artists are taking the stage from those in the 2000s. Think Drake or Travis Scott, Gucci Mane, The Migos, Post Malone, Kendrick Lamar. Another form of music that will grow again in the 2010s was teen-oriented pop. And this was mainly due to TV networking and channels focused towards kids, things like the Disney Channel, which could market Miley Cyrus or Selena Gomez, Justin Bieber, Demi Lovato, or the Jonas Brothers. And with the influx of computer equipment in music, a new genre would grow even larger. EDM, or electronic dance music, will grow to include individual artists like David Guetta or Skrillex, Steve Aoki, Clean Bandit, Martin Garrix, Marshmallow, and Alan Walker. What electronic dance music will provide in the form of things like dubstep is a new way to listen to music, a wholly new sound generated by a computer. Something like this. Thank you. 
And with just that, you can see the evolution of music. There are hard notes. There are instruments. And there are computer-generated audio logs in this type of music. And it is indicative of what the 2010s and the world we're living in now has brought to the stage. It is no secret that we are more interconnected now than we have ever been in the history of humanity as a species and as a organism on this planet there is nothing as interconnected as we are at this point in our history and our music has no choice but to reflect that because music is a reflection of who we are it is a reflection of our feelings and it is a reflection of our logic and it is a reflection of who we are you listen to music that you find enjoyable because that music is based in something, some sort of aspect of your life. You find a connection to the music that you listen to, be that the lyrics, the song, or the technicality behind it. Music is always going to change, and your music tastes will always change because we, ourselves, are always changing. And now we stand at the cusp of a new decade. And all I ask is what's next? Thank you for listening to this episode of The Logs, where there is now an episode for that. Please like, please follow, please subscribe, and listen to us anywhere you find podcasts. Go and check out our store now. Get yourself some awesome swag from The Logs. Get a transcription of the episode by listening on YouTube. And above all, remember to laugh a little. Thank you for listening to Season 1 of The Logs. We'll be back for more very soon.